This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen. How's it going, Miles? I'm doing really well and I'm very close to my microphone. You are? Yeah, that's good. At your behest. It's good (laughs) etiquette. I want the listeners to feel like they are not just in the studio with us, but as close to our mouths as possible. (laughs) Sorry for creeping you out, listeners. Yeah. There was a podcast that I listened to where the the host had just recorded an audio book and then forgot to change his settings back. So it sounded like we were in his mouth the whole episode and it was awful like he tweeted about it afterwards and was like i'm really sorry about that whole experience for everybody i didn't change my settings you got the back. full mouth feel yeah it was it was gross hopefully it's not like that for our podcast i don't think it is i think that we sound i think we sound fine you want to hear something cool i was at the daycare drop off the other day and somebody there had been on a road trip and they said they listened to us for like an entire state on That's their drive too much spring break. yeah i was like well, i'm sorry but they said it helped speed up the, the drive. So that's good. They apparently are easy to entertain. I know. It is weird because when we record this, it's just you and me. And I don't like listen to it anymore because I don't edit it anymore. So I don't hear it again. But then I know that there are people who have heard my voice more than like most people in my life have heard my voice. Maybe more than my wife has heard <laughs> my voice because they have listened. If you've listened to every episode of the podcast, you've probably listened to... 500 hours maybe of us talking oh god i know it's it's a wild proposition and there are people who have listened to every single episode it's a lot of mumbling by me i know the only people who like my mom listened to every episode so i was was gonna say nobody's heard me more than my mom so that's (laughs) that's still good that's not creepy but like number two on that list is probably someone i haven't met which is maybe creepy (laughs) that is weird yeah So we've got a number of things to talk about. I I think first things first, let's talk about the cover of the Peninsula Pulse. There's a bunch of young people in some sort of governmental setting. Looks really interesting. What are these young people doing? (laughs) These are high schoolers all from Door County, and they are participating in the Youth in Government program. Thank goodness we finally got some young people in government. Yes, this is our way in. (laughs) It's a program run through the Door County Y, and the photo on the cover is all of these students in the State House in Madison as part of the Model Government Weekend. So what is like model government? I think that I have a touchstone for this, but I'll let you explain it first and then I'll tell you if I actually know what I what it is. So what they do with the Door County Y is they take everyone from like, you can be like seventh grade, you can start and be part of it through your senior year. And it is pretty much what it sounds like. They basically create like a youth government and you learn how parliamentary procedure works and Robert's Rules of Order and how to debate and how to craft a bill and you have to try and so what these students do is they try and create a bill and push it through the student government and they go through all those processes just like a state senate state assembly or the federal government so you learn a lot about how government works perfect i do know what this is i was involved in it for three years in high school we called it <laughs> student congress okay and it was a semi-competitive forensics thing like speech yeah. or one yep. act um we would basically get a list of bills 
and then we would do all of our research and we would bring and we would have to try to argue our case for or against each one of the bills and we would run it like a session of Congress. And my first year, like my first year in all forensics was learning like the basics of how it works, right? The way to participate in this is to create an understanding of how government works. The way that I would compete in this is to just try to win the competition. So what do I have to do, you know, to make myself win? And everything would come down to a vote at the end where people would be like, all right, who argued their cases the best, who, that kind of stuff. So if I was the funniest or the most charming or the most authoritative, then I would win. It had nothing to do with how good I was at the debate or how much I knew about any of this stuff. I just tried to game it so that I could win. So your approach was actually much more like how our government actually works now. Yes. With legislators, like we just saw at the hearings for the Supreme Court confirmation, just working for sound bites that they can use in a political ad. Yep. Or I treated it like a popularity contest. On the nightly news, or I'm going to make a quip, or I'm going to say something outlandish, and it's either going to get people fired up or it's it's going to get me on the news. It's going to get my face somewhere. Yes. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of our government now works, right? Everyone's looking to try and be part of a soundbite. And talking to a few of the students who took part in this, it was just so great to hear them not leaning that way, right? <laughs> um, what I talked to Scott Feldman and Alana Rabach, and they both really impressive young women, and they in talking about what they got out of this, one of the things they both came back to was, you know what, learned a lot about listening to other people and understanding other people's arguments that I didn't agree with, but trying to keep an open mind and allow myself to have my mind changed or ask the right questions to learn more about where somebody was coming from and having empathy for their position or what they thought. And my mind was just blown because those are not words that you, I, I've interviewed all of our local representatives at one point or another. I've interviewed the governors, the last two, go three governors of Wisconsin. I've never heard anyone talk about that. I've never heard any of them say anything about really trying to understand where the other people are coming from. And to hear these young students say that, it just it really gave me some hope and made me feel good about it. <laughs> like, I just, as I'm talking to them, I, I just felt like a smile coming across my face. I'm just like, oh, this is so refreshing. Because you just don't. It's like everything in our politics, and this is nothing new, this isn't anything that nobody knows already, but whether it's local representatives, whether it's Mike Gallagher at the congressional level, Ron Johnson, Governor Walker, Governor Evers, going down the line, it's all about scoring political points all the time. It's not about like, how do we find ways to work together and solve a problem the best way possible? How do we understand where other people are coming from and the, the struggles they're facing or how they're seeing the world? Nobody's taking the time at least in my experience, to try and figure that out. It's all just like, how do I use whatever they just said against them and to try and further my point? And it's, it is uh, depressing when you cover this all the time. Yep. So this was just such a refreshing story to be able to write. Yeah, and how wonderful to know that the next generation is better than I am because <laughs> uh, my approach was, how, well, how do I speak the most? How do I get up there and have people hear me the most so that I can leave the best impression so that they vote for me at the end and I get to take home a trophy? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it worked, but if you know, I don't know anything about government. So am I a good politician or a bad one? You're probably, you're probably a good one. Okay, that's uh, what I, I thought as you said that. Well, what these students also said was, Obviously, they learn a lot about public speaking. They learn about debate. They learn about proper address. So instead of addressing the individual, they address the position. 
that somebody had taken. And I, I actually, hearing them say that, I'm like, oh, I could, I could learn something from that. And I thought I actually could learn a lot by going and following youth government and going through this program myself. But man, could our local representatives, our municipal boards and everybody learn a lot. Our school boards, our the people who attend our school board meetings and our town board meetings could learn a lot by some of this stuff. So unfortunately, most of us actually know very little about how this stuff works. And this is what we are kind of in a weird way most proud of when we say like USA, USA or democracy is great. Most of us don't actually know how it works or how it, like the laws are passed. So I don't know. There are 15 kids who took part in this through the Door County Wise program. And in a general usual year, they get like 15 to 25. And it's it just seems like a, a great learning experience. And from, from the kids I talk to, they're obviously learning a lot. And I think Scout Feldman, you know, speaking of empathy, the bill that she proposed and got passed through the student government and signed by the lieutenant governor and the governor in this particular program was one for basically would make it so municipalities had to offer text to 911. So for people with speech or hearing disabilities, they would be able to, if they were in emergency, they could text 911 and get help. And like right now, it was just like, that is your empathy right there. This is somebody who has, in Scout's case, she has been learning sign language for several years. So she said she thinks a lot about like what people who can't hear or can't speak, what they're experiencing day to day. So that's why she drew that bill forward. And, you know, that kind of empathy for somebody who is experiencing a, the world in a totally different way than her. It's just really great to see that and hear that. Yeah. Well, and it looks like there was a lot more legitimacy in the setting that this takes place at, too. They got to do it at the house building in Madison, whereas I would compete in classrooms. <laughs> yeah. So a little yeah, bit they, different. They go for, so this all, their program starts in November and they work their way up or they meet weekly and it ends with the student government session, the model government session down in Madison, where they, they do it at the Capitol in the Senate and assembly chambers that our, our local representatives use. And they have multiple tracks. They have a legislative track, executive track, and a judicial track. So there's different ways you can participate. And they even have like a press corps track so people can cover the proceedings and learn how journalism plays an important part in democracy and government. So I particularly like that aspect. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I will say one last thing, because I haven't thought about this in 10 years, it's wild to me now looking back on my behavior and how I would do this because it is, especially in the last five years, you've seen how rogue agents can come in and influence things to a wild degree where they, you know, are not playing the game traditionally. They are just throwing all of the rules out and doing whatever they want. And then we come to realize that we don't have policies in place to stop people from doing that. Yeah. They just are allowed to. So when I look back on the way that I would do this, it was very much in that zone where like <laughs> many people would come and the basic thing is they would memorize all of the bills and memorize their speeches or prepare speeches for each one of them so that they could go up and they could give their speech right and you know as long as you talked on each bill you would get a good number of points and you could be happy with that i would not prepare anything or look at the bills ahead of time i would sit down and then i would base everything that i was saying on attacking the other people rather than like actually fighting for anything but it got me up and you would get points just for speaking so as long as i was funny then when I would stand to speak, people would call on me because they'd want to hear what I have to say next. So I would I would get the most points because I, would, I wasn't Again, saying anything. Again, it sounds like you've missed your calling. You, you sound, by not knowing what you're talking about, but just attacking people, you sound like tailor-made 
to run for office. I know. And the worst part about it is I did win these. <laughs> I came back with trophies just by speaking the most. I would get enough points to make it into like the top three. And then the whole group would vote on who wins. And I would play it in a way where it's like, I'm the obvious choice. Didn't you see how much I talked and how much I made you all laugh? <laughs> so like, I, that's, which is the most important way of yeah. to handle our and most important issues. I'm looking back on my behavior and condemning it. Because, you know, I did not take anything seriously. But the fact that but I could did you do, win? Yeah. The fact that I could do what I did and win, like, just goes to show. And justify the main. How government works. Right? <laughs> yes. So, all right. That's, that's me airing my dirty laundry yeah. for this episode. <laughs> Let's move on to talking about some more stuff that's going to be coming up. So, J1 employees are the lifeblood of the summer economy in terms yes. of making things happen. And uh, they have been a little constrained the last couple of years for a number of reasons. There may be some more reasons why things might be constrained this year, but it does look like people are going to have employees. Yeah, at least uh, at least more than we had in the last couple of years. J-1 employees, when we say that, we're referring to student workers coming here on a J-1 visa from another country. The U.S. works with particularly with a lot of Eastern European countries to bring workers here in the summer. Actually, it's a year-round program. It's not just a summer program. But these have to be people enrolled in university overseas, and they come here, and it's a cultural exchange. It's not supposed to be just for workers. There are plenty of places that abuse this. And so you get to have these kids, 18 to 23, 24, 25 years old, come over to the United States and spend four months working in the United States and they get to, they're supposed to work for three and a half of those months and no more than that. They can work less than that, but generally three and a half months and then have two weeks to travel. And it's a culture exchange. They learn about the U.S. The U.S. learns about them. I, back in my restaurant days, worked with a lot of kids here on J-1 visas and just by working alongside them and hearing you know, you're working alongside a Lithuanian, a Russian, a Ukrainian, and a Polish worker. You learn their experience, their view of America. It was even just as you're sitting there cooking food, you're learning a ton about them and their background and, and how they see the U.S. And, and they're obviously learning a lot about us and language as well. So it's a really cool program. And in the U.S. or in Door County, in a typical year, it had crested at about 540 workers in Door County in the summer. And the last couple of years, we've had less than 200, sometimes down, I think like last year, two years ago, it was down around 100. So that's a ton of workers out of the Door County labor force. And what that really is, I'd say you could probably almost double that in terms of like the jobs they fill, because most of these kids work multiple jobs, at least 1.5 jobs, often two to 2.5 jobs because they'll work 90 to 100 hours. So when you're losing 400 of them, that's really like 800 to 1,000 positions. Right. In a year when we have few workers to begin with, yeah. but more demand as sales tax and room tax have shown. Yeah. So we've got more people than ever trying to use services and less people than ever trying to provide them. Yep. So... Boy, how do we get through the last two years <laughs> at all? Well, in talking to a couple of different business owners, I talked to Fred Bexel at Al Johnson's. Al Johnson's employs in peak season about 125 people, he told me. Last year, they did it with about 85. Normal year, they bring in 30 to 45 J-1 temporary workers. And last year, they brought 14. So what that does is it just stretches everybody thin. And everyone's seen it at restaurants. People are saying like, hey, there's not much longer we can maintain this. 
And so some people have changed the way they do their service. They've cut out sit-down dining or they've cut out real dishes. They've started serving everything, even if they have sit-down dining, serving to go so they don't have to find dishwashers uh, or doing takeout only. So hotels have cut back on the number of people cleaning rooms and the because they can't find people to clean. So a lot of those sorts of things have been done to try and deal with the problem. But then even with that, a lot of workers, like Freddie said at, at Al Johnson's, you know, people stepped up, worked double time, busted their butts. But at a certain point, it's like, how long can you expect that staff to do that before they hit a breaking point? So the hope is that we return to those previous levels of J1s. Right now, it looks like we might have as many as 400, maybe more, uh, as long as all the visas get approved. So in this week's issue, I wrote a longer story that kind of outlines the process that business owners have to go to just to bring them over here. Right. Is there any complications from the war in Ukraine that will play into this at all? Well, what I was told in talking to a couple of different people is there is some fear of that because obviously we... We've brought Russian workers, we've brought Ukrainian workers, and that's probably not going to be the case this year. But even in the last couple of years, apparently a lot of the agencies that that helped to sponsor these workers had focused on other countries because of some of the tension going on with the United States and Russia and Ukraine and Russia. So they actually don't think it's going to dampen the effort or the the number of employees as much as you might think just because some of these places that turned away and focused more of their efforts on, say, like in Al Johnson's case, they get a lot of workers out of Romania. And in fact, Freddie has gone, actually traveled to Romania to sit down and interview people and see them face to face in before COVID and to recruit workers because it is competitive. It's not like there's just these students just get thrown wherever they get thrown. They're looking across the United States. A lot of people like to be in New York or they want to be in California or they want to be in a big city. So you have to compete with them both with your wages, with the housing you offer, and that puts obviously Door County at a big disadvantage, and really recruit them and and get them to come to Door County. So that's becoming more and more competitive over the years. Hmm. Well, hopefully some relief is on the way. Yeah. So if we get, as of right now, they have a little over 400 students have applied for visas to come to the United States. I think a hundred and some have been approved. So there's a lot of work to be done there. And in talking to, to come Carly, to the United States or to come to Door County? To, or come to Door County. Okay. I was um, like, that's a very small pool for yeah, all of us yeah. to... Yeah. We all got to fight over 400. I was talking to Car Northrop at Main Street Market. She kind of outlined this process. She starts communicating and, and working on the recruitment angle in November. And for each employee, there are dozens of emails that you're trading. And then this agency will do a lot of the background checks and interviews with them over there. Then there's the process of, okay, you hire this person, you choose this person, you you get them approved, but then they still have to go to the embassy. And then the embassy has to give them their visa and send them over. And sometimes you go through all that work and the embassy says no, and you don't ever find out why. You just know that that employee is not coming. So what Karin was telling me is you often have to, if you need 14, you will hire 18 in just in case a couple of them don't get approved. And maybe one year, all 18 get approved. And then you're scrambling. Oh, now we got to find housing for them at the last second. It's a good problem to have. Almost everybody would say like, yeah, I'll take more workers. I'll find a place for them. But there's all these complications because if you just hired, if you needed 14 and you just went for 14, you might end up with 12 and now you're stuck because right. come April and May, it's too late in the process to try and get those workers here. And once those workers come, they, they land at the airport. You got to go pick them up. You got to bring them here. You got to house them. As Karin said, as a boss, you are responsible for them. They're basically your kids at that point. If they get hurt, you got to get them to the hospital. If they 
need transportation to work, you got to get them that transportation. It's there's just so much that goes into it that people don't know. And then you're legally you you have to pay them the prevailing wage. You can't just pay them less because they're foreign workers. And that's that for some employers, that's what they've been busted on is I don't know of any specifically in Door County, but that is something that happens across the country and probably has happened in Door County where employers have tried to get away by paying people less. So that's not the way it's supposed to work. Right. So I encourage people to check out that article to, to learn a little bit more about how this kind of works. And because that's the other thing. I know that people interact with J1 employees all summer long, but I, I wonder how many of them know how the process works. Yeah, it's complicated. Even I have employed them in the past uh, in the restaurant days, but I was a moocher. So like I never went through the process. I would just have you know, somebody who worked at Al's or say like someone at Main Street Market or the Landmark Resort and they'd pop in and they'd be looking for a second job. And I'd say, sure, yeah, you can work some shifts here. But I wasn't pitching in all the costs and time that these other employers do to bring them over. And much to my chagrin, now that I realize this today, I'm like, I never even said thank you. <laughs> um, I never even like called up Main Street or Al Johnson say, hey, thanks for doing the legwork there. Can I buy you a beer? <laughs> you gave me a staffer. And I was totally a moocher and didn't realize just all the work that goes into just bringing each individual worker over here just to work for those four months. And I know some people think that businesses do this and it's taking away American jobs. Every employer I've ever talked to is like, no, I'd love to hire an American. If, if an American showed up the door, I'd hire them. Actually, Fred Bexel said, to be honest, I'm hiring anybody. Like, yeah, we interview them and stuff and we, we try to vet them, but almost everybody's going to get a chance. As uh, Teflon from the Bayside once told me, it was like, you don't, you don't get fired from the Bayside. Your shifts just get farther and farther apart. So even if you cross that red line and piss off that owner and you get fired, you get canned, yeah, two years later, they might be like, okay, can you work a couple of shifts? It's just so thin staffed. Right. All right. Let's take a break. And then when we come back, uh, there was an election that just happened. We should probably go over that a little bit. And then we're going to talk just a bit on some affordable housing stuff. I'm, I'm dangling that for people to who don't want to listen to the election stuff to stick around. <laughs> We've got some news on the affordable housing front. So take a break and we'll be right back. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. Okay, we are back. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the election. You know, a better podcast host would have segued from the student government piece into the election news, but... That's too obvious. Yeah. I, I try to keep you guessing on what we're going to talk <laughs> about. I actually thought maybe we would do chronologically based on age. We'd start with the youngest people and slowly move up to the oldest in terms of topics. But that's a little that's a little vague, I think, <laughs> maybe for people to follow. I don't think anyone was like, oh, we're starting young and going old. Yeah, that would be a tough one. Right. Tough one to catch on to. Thanks for trying to save my pride as a podcast host there, but I don't know if it worked. So let's talk about this election that happened. Uh, pretty important election when it comes to representatives on the county board. Also, there were some school board elections that took place. 
give me kind of the rundown on on what happened. So every county board seat comes up every two years. And, you know, there's 21 county board seats. Only seven of them were contested elections. So the other 14 just had no competition. Obviously, they sailed through. The other seven races, there were four races that had incumbents, and all four incumbents won. In one of those cases, there were actually like two incumbents running against each other. And the reason that happened is because they redrew the district lines this year, which ended up putting two sitting board members against each other in Kara Kennard and Nancy Robillard. And Nancy Robillard won. Kind of a weird quirk in things. But yeah, it's, it's, the last couple of election cycles, you've seen some turnover on the county board. But this time, you just other than those races where they, there were no incumbents running, you just kind of saw the kind of the old guard stay in, stay in power. Yeah, why do we have elections for, just in general, why do, why do we have elections when uh, no one's running against anybody? There could potentially be a writing candidate. If somebody decided to join late after the deadline to be on the ballot, if somebody decided they wanted to run, you could mount a writing campaign. What if, uh, let's say I ran and nobody was running against me, and then nobody voted for me, but one person wrote your name in. Would you win? I would. Even though you weren't running? Yep. What if you don't want to do it? <laughs> well, I guess, I suppose, yeah, you'd have to be willing to <laughs> to serve. Yeah. You won by write-in. I wasn't, I, I wasn't running. <laughs> there were actually multiple races this time around, and I still have to double-check to find out which write-in won. But Village of Sister Bay had a seat that had nobody running for it. And so it was only writing candidates. And I think there were probably three or four other races around the county in little municipal boards or for certain positions that only had write-ins. So That seems like such a flimsy system. Be like, nobody's running, so whoever anyone wants to do it can do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there aren't that many, that many people who run for these offices in general. I mean, there's in the town of Egg Harbor, I think they had two, two seats up for election and both of them were uncontested. My dad dominated the competition in the town of Egg Harbor, 170 to 1. There was one write-in vote against him. Was it you? It wasn't. No. <laughs> they probably thought it was me, so that's why they wrote in somebody else's name. They're like, oh, I hate that guy at the paper. But yeah, so the county board generally will hold pretty close to what it's been. The municipal boards, there weren't a lot of super exciting races. Sturgeon Bay School District had a referendum that passed for operating expenses for the next, I think it's the next four years. That is the typical revenue limit override so that they can, it's not for capital expenses. They're not adding anything new. They had one of those a couple of years ago. They are just, that's just ongoing expenses. And pretty much every school in the county does that every couple of years. And they, they pass overwhelmingly. And this one did too by almost a, not quite a two to one margin. But pretty high. Um, but yeah, pretty high. School boards, mostly incumbents won. There was um, an interesting race in the Gibraltar school board because one of the things that seems to be happening here is these are nonpartisan races. And by nonpartisan, that means like you don't run for school board necessarily as a Republican or a Democrat, or you don't run for county board as a Republican or Democrat. Like that's not, it's not like a, a state assembly or presidential election where it's like Donald Trump, Republican, Joe Biden, Democrat. It, people are, but they, that's not part of the platform. But some of the local and state party organizations have started to get involved in these, which we'll probably dive into more. And I haven't done a lot of looking around on it, but you had the local Republican Party sending out mass text messages with a slate of candidates to support in local elections. And I know the local Democratic or the state Democratic organization had done that in some of the primaries, which has kind of raised some eyebrows in that the partisanship 
is now trickling down into the most most local of races. And I kind of like, I don't want to know everyone, as somebody who covers this, I like to cover it without knowing anyone's politics because that does color their school board decisions and stuff. And I know that a lot of these people, they're not always taking politics into account when you're serving on those boards. So that's just an interesting twist that, I mean, I don't have a fully fleshed out thought on that right here, but it is something we're going to be looking into in the future of what that will mean for our local elections and local politics as, as that kind of partisanship trickles down. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm a person who thinks that your beliefs, your hobbies, your political leanings, all those things make up who you are, but they are not your identity. And people who use their political affiliation as their identity, those are, it's, it's hard because then you have people who are in positions to make policy decisions, making them based on party lines and and for no other reason. And then you also have voters who are like, I'm going to vote party lines for no other reason than to vote party lines because I am a Democrat. I am a Republican. It is Mm -hmm. my identity. So when you do see those things trickling down into local elections that don't have anything to do with those, like school board, then it becomes like, okay, if you have a candidate who's saying, I'm a Republican candidate for school board, you're basically signaling to your voters, like, vote for me because you also identify as Mm -hmm. a Republican and for no other reason than that. Yeah, and people will do that. Right. And I had a conversation with Mark Savard about this, and Mark is a conservative guy. I I think he would probably identify as libertarian if he were to choose. And 10, 10, 12 years ago, we were talking about this, and, and he was actually bemoaning the fact that a lot of people on county board like to say they were conservative, but they don't spend like they're conservative. So they spend a lot of money. And so you could go through the county board at that time and it would be overwhelmingly people who would identify as conservative, but our county budget was still going up all the time and we were expanding services. And the point of that was just to say, you might want your national government to cut cut expenses. You might want the state government to cut expenses. You might want them to not spend any money on certain programs. And you may not be all about you know, what people might call the welfare state, you might say like, well, we shouldn't fund, we, we should cut back on our unemployment and benefits. We should cut back on our health and human services and social services that we offer. But then locally, they vote to support that because locally, that person who might be very fiscally conservative or, or partisanly conservative on the national level, locally, their neighbor needs that service. And so they vote for it and support it locally. And the local budget they don't have as much problem spending on. They get their, yes, we need to spend on our roads. Yep, that's just what it costs. We have to do that. But then nationally, they, they, they might say, why are we spending all that money? Yeah. You know? And that's, that's not- Why are we spending money on things I will never use? <laughs> yes, and that's not a bad thing necessarily. So who you are politically doesn't mean as much on that local, hyper-local level as just how much you know about the issues and, and how connected you are. Because you don't, right. those things don't play the same way. Unless you're trying to use that affiliation to get votes for no That's other true. reason than that. Yeah. So if you are marketing yourself as a Republican or a Democrat, just so that Republicans and Democrats will vote for you based on that identifier, yeah. but, but nothing else, that's when it becomes – it becomes a red flag for me, right? If I see a candidate like running for a nonpartisan position on partisan grounds – that's a red flag for me because it shows me that they want the votes, but don't have, you know, perhaps the policy to back up those votes. Possibly. 
All right, let's jump into our last bit of news for today. Big game changer when it comes to affordable housing. 200 square feet worth of affordable housing, right? <laughs> yeah, I would I would not call this a big game changer. This isn't going to solve it? No. Oh, man. Um, but there is a little bit of movement. The county board has passed some amendments to the zoning code that make it slightly easier to do some things with affordable housing. These are not wholesale, this is going to solve it. I talked to Mariah Good about this a while back, and, and she said as she was working there, these changes were making their way through the, the process. She said, I don't expect somebody, like once we pass these changes, to suddenly build a ton of affordable housing. But if somebody is trying to build it, it will make it a little bit easier to do it and make it a little more financially viable to build things at a more affordable level. So the things that they did were to, one thing that actually is probably going to get most of the attention if people start paying attention is that accessory dwellings, the county like 10 years ago started to allow people to build accessory dwellings on their property. So an apartment above a a garage or a secondary dwelling that, you know, like in, in my case on my property, I could build a secondary cottage type thing up to 750 square feet and I could rent that out. The county did that to try and make it more plausible for other people to create some sort of housing. So little one-offs, like, all right, somebody put a gar- I'm going to put an apartment above my garage, or I'm going to put something above my barn. And they tried to make it easier for that for year-round housing, for apartments. Well, down the road, and they, they initially had, you had to rent that for 30 days or more. So it wasn't supposed to be for vacation rentals. Then in 2017, the state legislature pass some rules that you couldn't deny someone the ability to rent for seven days or less, basically spurred more of the Airbnb market. So when we talk about housing, you can point to your legislature for some of this. Like there are things that they've done that make it more beneficial to rent weekly than it is to rent year round. Even though the county put this whole thing in place just to try and create some affordable rental apartments. So what they have done now is they, so the county had to change that rule at that time. They felt like, oh crap, now we're, we're out of compliance. So we're going to have to allow people to rent this out on a week to week basis. They have since through their legal counsel, they now feel like they are in a good spot and legally sound to say, no, you have to rent it for 30 days or more. So existing rentals are grandfathered in. So if somebody is renting their apartment above their garage right now as a weekly Airbnb or something, they can still do that. But nobody going forward will be able to do that. So they've gone back to the 30 days plus because, as Mariah said, this was always intended to be a way to create more year-round housing for people who live here, not to spur more vacation rentals. So that's one small aspect. And again, like Mariah said, that's not going to dramatically change the the housing market, but it gets it back to what they originally intended. And then uh, they're reducing the some of the minimum home sizes. A lot of people don't realize this because it doesn't come into play because there's not usually a lot of demand for small homes, but they are reducing the minimum home size in say like a multi, if you were to do a concert, what do they call it? A commune? <laughs> sort, sort of like a, a conservation development where you could build homes for, it used to be 750 square feet was the minimum size. Now that's dropping down to like 500. So you could build a smaller home, 500 square feet, that could potentially be more affordable. And then maybe a developer could put more of them and and make a little more profit. So it's little things on the edges that 
could encourage people to try some new things. So if you live in county zoning and or if you own property in county zoning, you may want to look at these new rule changes, ordinance changes, and ideally you're looking at them because you want to build affordable housing somebody because you're a good person. <laughs> um, right. And not looking at this as going like, oh, now I don't have to build something 750 square feet and charge $1,400 for it a month. I can drop that down to 500 and keep the prices the same. <laughs> Which you probably could. <laughs> right. So whew, that one's going to be an interesting thing to look at moving forward as you ruffle the newspaper in front of you. I'm just trying to give us a sound effect just to show that people are constantly reading the pulse. Yep, that is <laughs> that, that is, is what true. that is that what came across? Yeah. We this is, you know, this is a newsroom and that's how we get our news. We just <laughs> read the pulse. I should say that like that 500 square feet if that is not what like typically when people refer to a tiny home, you're talking like 400 square feet or less and so 500 feet Square feet doesn't quite qualify in like what people typically think of as, as a tiny home, but it is a pretty small cottage. Like the some of the cottages from the Inn at Little Sister that were moved were as small as 350 square feet to 500, just to put that in people's heads of what that context is for that size of a home, which, you know, the average new home build in the United States today is like 2,600 square feet. So. Right. How big do you think the podcast studio is? Nine Square feet. No, square feet. Uh, this like, actually might be, I'd say like 64. I could see this being like eight by eight. Yeah. In that, in that zone, you could live in here. That's why we're able to be six feet apart. Right. We're both against the wall here. I think we're less than six feet, but not by much. I feel like if we had a tape measure, we'd be like 5.65. Okay. So we're very, very close. It's good that we split hairs on yeah. that. <laughs> we're, we're still trying to comply the best we can, <laughs> keep ourselves safe. But uh, I don't think we're that far apart. I was going to say I could live in here. I mean... It'd be tight. Just, yeah. It'd be like a dorm. Yeah. My, my dorm was actually a lot bigger yeah. than this. Because uh, I went from a two-person dorm to a one-person dorm, but all of the dorms share the same footprint. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, I basically had a little studio. Yeah, I lived in uh, at Madison, Aug East, which was sardine can living. It was bigger than this, but not a heck of a lot bigger. Yeah, we, we had plenty of room. and I think a lot windows. of colleges like don't even have those dorms anymore. They've uh, The dorm I was in doesn't exist anymore. I will say, like... Me, just me alone in the dorm was exactly the right amount of room for a dorm. Having two people in that would be wild because <laughs> as it is, your desk space is, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And then like, that's as much room as you have from one shoulder to the other for your desk space. And then literally your dorm mate is back to back with you in their desk space. And then the rest of the room is enough room for oh, your- So you, you each had your own desk? We each had our own desk. Yeah, see, we didn't have that. We just, but it was, it was like one like, long desk. Uh, well, I didn't use it that much. Anyway, cut that so. long desk in half and put them back to back. Yeah. That's what we had, basically. And then the rest of the room was for your bunk beds. And God forbid you didn't want to do bunk beds because there'd be no room for anything else. Yeah, we didn't We didn't have bunk beds either. We either, people would. I lived in the smoking wing too because yeah. I was stupid and very late on getting my stuff done and got stuck with whatever was left. So I've never smoked in my life, but I lived in the smoking dorm and that was bad call. Yeah. If you wanted a loft bed or a bunk bed, you had to buy it separately through a catalog that the school would provide. They wouldn't just like set that up for you, but you could raise and lower your bed. And on the highest setting, you had to jump into it, which was fun, but also you could fit your like school provided dresser under your bed. And that would save you some room as well. So, yeah. I, I always envied the people who went and did that. It didn't happen in my door. No, I didn't have that either. I had, although I did have two beds in my room, which was fun. So I just stacked them on each other and then basically had one of those like, uh, like four corner beds. 
And I, I was, I was generally bad at college. I was pretty good. Like most things in my life, I gamed it so that I could get trophies. <laughs> you can get a trophy for dorm room setup. Yeah. Yeah. I think <laughs> so. There were people who would come by and be like, your dorm is in compliance. Great job. And there are people who come by and be like, your dorm sucks. You guys, there's a lot you guys got to do. Get that <laughs> microwave out of here. All right. For the one person still listening to this conversation, thank you for listening yeah. to the Door County Falls <laughs> podcast. Miles, thank you for chatting with me about the news, and I'll chat with you again soon. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at the Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.